episode 408, Who's Suing Who? An overview of healthcare legal goings-on with Chris Deacon. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I couldn't resist the who's suing who because, yeah, you can't go wrong with Aretha Franklin references. Back on the pod, we have Chris Deacon, who is going to give us a rundown of the legal goings on going on right now that impact self-insured employers, carriers, hospitals and taxing authorities like cities. Chris breaks down the legal activity into three main categories. And then we discuss some examples of lawsuits in each category. So here's the outline of our upcoming conversation. Number one category of legal action, the breach of fiduciary line of cases against carriers. And in this category, we have bricklayers versus Anthem class action. We have mass laborers versus Blue Cross Blue Shield. And we have member versus Cigna. Moving on to the second big category of legal activity, we have the carrier versus hospital and the hospital versus carrier cases. So they all comprise our second category here. We talk about the United versus Team Health case and the Team Health versus United case. Then number three, we have our taxing authority versus nonprofit hospitals category of legal action. And in this category, we have the Tower Health line of cases in Pennsylvania. And we also have the Pittsburgh versus UPMC ongoing litigation. So this episode itself is a little bit on the longer side, and I didn't want to edit too many of Chris's words of wisdom. So I'm going to make this a little bit shorter, this intro. But just one point that I'll make, and this is about the first category of legal activity, wherein self-insured employers mostly try to pass the who is actually the fiduciary hot potato to carriers, ASOs and TPAs. And the carriers, ASOs and TPAs are like, it ain't us. Moving forward here, I'm just going to say carriers as a catch all for carriers, ASOs and TPAs to save myself a mouthful. But bottom line on this topic, I just want to underscore something that Chris makes clear later on in the show. Plan sponsors, i.e. self-insured employers, are the fiduciary, the sole fiduciary, at least according to the carriers who are getting sued right now. This is the position that you can see them taking in every lawsuit that I have seen. What the carriers say also, as a follow-on, is that if there is any contractual language between the carrier and the employer that violates the CAA or any other regulations, it is or was the employer's responsibility to not sign the contract. It's not the carrier's responsibility to point out that there's stuff in their own contract that's in violation for the employer to sign. And this includes contracts that don't give self-insured employers the right to their own data which is pretty much a rate critical for any and all CAA compliance. As Justin Leader wrote the other day in reference to the Bricklayer case, he wrote, to get to the point of filing the suit, there was a solid two years of failed negotiations for the Bricklayers to get their own claims data. Two years trying to get claims data that is necessary for a fiduciary to have from a carrier who is saying essentially, good luck with that. You're the ones that signed our contract. I'll also link to one of Chris Deacon's latest LinkedIn posts about this in the show notes. My guest today, Chris Deacon, is a lawyer by training. 
She ran the state health plan for the state of New Jersey, which covered about 820,000 public sector lives. She now has an independent consulting firm, Versan Consulting. All these links are in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Kristen Deacon, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thanks for having me, Stacy. There have been a number of episodes of Relentless Health Value where we have talked at some length about, in a nutshell, stakeholders behaving badly, <laughs> or more precisely stated, payers and or providers and or others acting in ways that further their self-interest, i.e. their ability to rake in more money at the expense, generally speaking, of patients, employers, taxpayers who are funding the new profits who are now occurring to these entities. How would you summarize the legal goings-on, which may prove or not prove whether this country is able to kind of defend its citizenry against basically what's going on that some might consider predatory behavior at a minimum monopolistic liberties? So I would describe the current legal landscape as both, I'll say exciting, probably because I'm a lawyer, but exciting and promising because I find it to be what seems to be the last bulwark against some of the behaviors that you've talked about so often on your podcast, Stacey, and that we read about. We talk about this profit-seeking and some of these are for-profit businesses. Some are nonprofit, we know. Oftentimes, the behaviors that we might find morally or ethically repugnant and contrary to mission statements, they are in fact legal. But what we're going to get into more, I hope, in the episode is where the line has been crossed and where the law should and is stepping in, drawing the line between legal and illegal conduct and really how stakeholders who've been unable to address problems with the industry through market reforms or through exercising market power, they're taking it to the courts. I really like how you framed that. There's nothing illegal about a for-profit entity seeking profit. As has been said in every business school around the country, capital is amoral. And the whole basis of the whole thing is trying to mine dollars out of the system. So you put mining dollars out of the system with healthcare, you definitely have the potential to start going places which are, as you put it, morally repugnant, but it might not technically be illegal. Versus on the nonprofit side of the house, as Brennan Bilberry is going to say in an upcoming summer short, the FTC doesn't necessarily anticipate nonprofit entities behaving in for-profit ways. So some of the legal mechanisms here aren't great in controlling this behavior. Yeah. What some of these cases might actually show us is the deficiency in the legal framework itself. So if you, in your example, perhaps if the FTC doesn't have the legal framework to deal with anti-competitive and monopolistic practices of nonprofit entities, then that needs to be updated only through some of these lawsuits and maybe some of the challenges being unsuccessful, will we see, wait a minute, we need to catch the legal framework up with the current reality. Yeah, because for the longest time, the talking point has been, well, we're different. Even if we have a monopoly, we don't use our monopolistic power to do things that other industries would tend to do with their monopolistic power. We are wholesome and thoughtful and patient first. And it turns out that was a flawed premise. (laughs) 
So if we were going to categorize, let's say, the legal goings on here, because there's a lot of legal action afoot right now, how would you do that? There are a few key categories. The first one, and possibly in my mind, the most important is the breach of fiduciary duty line of cases. And these are employers filing suits against carriers. In one case, we have a member filing an ERISA case against a carrier. That's one line of cases. We also have health insurance companies, hospitals, and providers. We'll talk about the Team Health United, United Team Health, upcoding. And then finally, the nonprofit status of hospitals being challenged. We have four cases out of Pennsylvania that have played that out. And I think we have a lot more to come. All right. So we've got breach of fiduciary duty cases against carriers. Then we have carrier versus hospital stuff. And then thirdly, taxing authority versus nonprofit hospitals. And as you mentioned, much happening in in Pennsylvania. Why don't we start at the top of the list, the breach of fiduciary duty cases? What we talked about, I think, in our first episode that we had, Stacey, was what is a fiduciary with respect to a health plan? Since that time, there have been much discussion about the Consolidated Appropriations Act and employers and health plan sponsors having a fiduciary duty to use plan dollars prudently, to pay only reasonable expenses, to have access to their claims data. And there have been some additional tools that employers have been handed as a result of some updated laws and regulations that have really put the employers on notice that you need to do these things or you are going to get sued by your members. What we haven't seen yet is really any class actions by the employees themselves against their employer for mismanagement and breach of fiduciary duty. But what we are seeing is the employers going after, you know, the anthems, the Cygnas, Aetnas, the blues of the world, alleging breach of fiduciary duty, not necessarily as a named fiduciary, but as a fiduciary, in fact, a functional fiduciary, basically, meaning you are responsible for my health plan dollar because I've asked you to administer my health plan for me. And you have breached that duty in these ways. We have self-insured employers who run their own health plans. And when you're a self-insured employer who runs your own health plan, then you have fiduciary responsibility over ensuring, as you said, that the dollars are spent prudently without conflict of interest, etc. And anyone who's interested in learning more about all of that, as you mentioned, Chris, listen to an earlier episode, which I'll put in the show notes where Chris gets into a lot of detail relative to what actually is fiduciary duty and what ERISA and the new Consolidated Appropriations Act actually holds employers accountable for. And the point that you're making is that what these self-insured employers are saying is like, hey, I hired an ASO, you know, an administrative services only. I hired somebody as a TPA, third-party administrator, and I entrusted this other entity with running my plan. And turns out they didn't do a great job. And now the employer's like, all right, well, now we're going to court because you told me you were going to do something or I understood you said you were going to do something. And now I'm thinking you're not. Did I get that right? That's right. And I think if you want to dive right in, there are a couple of really key cases that are working their way through the courts right now that all eyes are on. This is Bricklayers versus Anthem. It's actually a class action on behalf of the bricklayers in Connecticut 
allied craft workers, sheet metal workers, and all others similarly situated. And it's against Elevance, formerly known as Anthem, and also against Empire. This Bricklayers case, which is Bricklayers versus Anthem. Anthem. What's happening? The plaintiffs are suing Anthem for breach of fiduciary duties, including Anthem's first failure to provide access to their claims data, and also for Anthem's what they're calling unlawful retention of planned funds and overpayments to providers with their planned funds. It's important to note that in these cases, the procedural sort of posture is really important. So the complaint was filed in December and Anthem has filed a motion to dismiss. I think it was March. And they argue in that motion to dismiss that the complaint fails on its face because Anthem isn't a fiduciary and they have no fiduciary obligation to provide access to the claims data of the plan. And I'm not going to get into legal speak, but I think it's really important to understand how a motion to dismiss, like what the standards are. It's going to be one of the most important pieces of this case from an impact perspective, because the standing issue, does Anthem have a fiduciary duty, is really like that's the issue. And the reason that it's the issue is because somebody has to be the fiduciary. And if it's not right. Anthem, then it is squarely on any self-insured employer here to be that fiduciary. Absolutely. And the complaint itself, paragraph nine in the complaint is actually my favorite paragraph because the plaintiffs call it out. They say, we are pursuing this fiduciary case against Anthem, specifically with respect to the claims, because they recognize and they say it. They say, if we do not do this, we will be co-defendants in the next case. It's almost a bit of a gamble than them going to court and them being told definitively employers are the fiduciary. Like it could come out. Yeah, nobody else is accountable. You are accountable employers. So you better start adding some more people in your benefits department to handle this because like you got to do this yourself. Absolutely. Either way, I think it will be positive in the sense that there will be some clarity, right? We need some bright lines because right now we have employers pointing at carriers. We have carriers pointing the finger back at the employers and saying, you're the fiduciary, you're the fiduciary. Until we have clarity, who has the responsibility to ensure that plan funds are being spent prudently, that there are no conflicts, funds are being used to the sole and exclusive benefit in the plan. Until we have that clarity and somebody squarely has all of that liability, I think we're going to continue to have these back and forth with who gets access to the claims data. Because without the information, how do you fulfill your fiduciary obligations? So you listed three things, which are the main points of the case. The first one was failure to provide access to data this, that, that the bricklayers are claiming here. The second one was unlawful payments. And then the third one was overpayments to providers. And it, it's almost like the first one almost guarantees the second two are going to happen, right? Because if the self-insured employer here, the union, I guess in this case, is in fact the fiduciary, but they don't have the data, then they can't actually be the fiduciary. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy that bad stuff is going to happen if the entity that's claiming not to be the fiduciary is like hoarding the data. To go back to put my lawyer hat on, why it's so important that the standard on a motion to dismiss is key here. The court has to be convinced, even if all of the allegations in the complaint were true, assuming that everything that the plaintiff said was true. And the plaintiff in this case, while they don't have all the claims data, they have enough to make 
some allegations about overpayments using hospital price transparency data, using some limited data that they have had access to. If you have a judge that says, assuming all of the things that you said are true, you still don't get to proceed to discovery or even having the defendant answer because they're not a fiduciary. Now the employer's in a position where they don't have access to claims data. So how would they be able to plead a complaint with more facts without the claims data? Sounds like if there is a motion to dismiss, which might be legally correct, but ultimately what it would point out, if it is legally correct, is that the law isn't correct because the employer is now in this catch-22 where they don't have the tools to actually be a fiduciary but they're being held accountable to be one, and then there's no legal recourse. Okay, this is where it gets even more interesting. So the defendant has filed the motion to dismiss, but it hasn't yet been decided. We're in a waiting period. The defendant, i.e. Anthem and Empires, their motion to dismiss basically says that as a threshold matter, the complaint fails because none of the defendants are ERISA fiduciaries. And when they are addressing the claims access issue, they basically say the Consolidated Appropriations Act, Section 2724, a section that says plaintiffs, i.e. health plans, must have access to their claims data and cannot sign a contract that restricts their access. What the defendants here actually in their brief, they say by its plain language, Section 724 applies to plaintiffs, not the defendants. If plaintiffs need to renegotiate their contracts to meet their obligations, they are free to do so. So they're saying, listen, our contract with them says we can limit their access. We can limit it strictly to audit rights. We can say they don't get to use a third party to review our claims. And if they're not in compliance with CAA and the gag clause restriction, that's their problem. And it's their duty to renegotiate their contracts. I hope every consultant and employer that is listening to this podcast hears that loud and clear. Anthem is telling the plaintiffs here, it's not on us, it's on you. If you think your contract is out of compliance with the CAA, you have to go and renegotiate that. And there's nothing about the CAA that makes that section of our contract void. So caveat emptor. Yeah, Big for time sure. With four underlines. Yes. So more to come on that case, Stacey. Another case that has recently been decided at the circuit level is the Mass Laborers versus Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. So in this case, very similar labor group brings a case against their TPA, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, alleging ERISA claims for much of the same sort of flavor, overpayment of claims, payments to providers that were more than the negotiated amount. They made some pretty meaty factual allegations in their complaint. But the district court dismissed, again, going back to that motion to dismiss standard, accepting all that they said was true, the district court still said, listen, they're not fiduciaries. They're not named fiduciaries. And everything that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts does is ministerial. So all you have at most is a claim and contract. Maybe they breached their contract by overpaying. Maybe they didn't. But it certainly isn't a fiduciary case. That was appealed. And the First Circuit has now upheld that appeal. The court stated they were not going to interfere with the business model employed by TPAs. That would come at a steep price to plans and their participants and create unnecessary upheaval in the TPA industry. So they really get into what a finding contrary to the district court would do to the business model of TPAs. If they were held to a fiduciary standard, 
then their, you know, their liability would go up and their costs would go up. And ultimately they might pass that cost on to customers. And we wouldn't want to rock that boat. That's basically what the First Circuit said. I think they had to engage in some legal gymnastics to get where they got. But some are pointing to this First Circuit decision, again, as at least a point of clarity. You are on notice employers, at least in the First Circuit. They think, you know, even if your TPA is overpaying, paying inappropriately, it's all just a claim and contract. It is not a breach of fiduciary duty. That liability solely rests with the employer. There could, it sounds like in both of these cases, be some sort of contractual something or other, which is grounds for a lawsuit. In other words, you didn't fulfill what you wrote in your contract and this is how much damages we think, but it's not some kind of overarching fiduciary complaint. Yeah, but I think the important point here is if it's solely a claim in contract, right? You have the underlying duty of good faith and fair dealing underneath that contract, but you don't have any of the other sort of quote unquote trust in the relationship that a fiduciary duty relationship would impart. So if I'm an employer and I am contracting with Anthem to be my TPA, I come to that relationship if it's purely contractual and not fiduciary in nature in any manner whatsoever from a very different posture, like a very different, you know, I'm not assuming that they're looking out for my best interest because that's what a fiduciary would do, not what a contract party would do. I'm not assuming that they are going to bend over backwards to make the right payment or do anything that's outside of their business interest because it's in my business interest. So I'm coming to that relationship differently if I think that we are purely contractual parties and there isn't some additional element of fiduciary relationship there between the two parties. Well, let's talk about the member versus Cigna right now, because again, this one could get dicey because now we have a member of one of these plans who's suing the payer, not the employer in this case. So I definitely could see how this one also has some edge of the seat moments with it, because if this one gets dismissed for the same kinds of reasons, and I'm just explaining where my head is right now, then you could wind up with members turning around and suing their employer. So the member versus Cigna case was much higher on my list before the case settled. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm sure Cigna waved a very nice check in front of the member so that this didn't get to that stage because a couple things would have happened. The member sues Cigna. Cigna then takes the position the member's appropriate cause of action should be against the employer and not Cigna because Cigna doesn't owe that member a fiduciary duty. So at that point, either the member now has to sue the employer or Cigna has to join the employer as a co-defendant. Unfortunately, we never got to that stage in the litigation because it's settled. But it does bring forth, again, these really interesting questions of who should be suing who, right? And again, in this case, the member goes straight to Cigna because they've been damaged. And the facts of this case are a little wonky. The member goes to a lab. The cash price for the lab services the member gets are around 500 bucks. But when the claim is processed through their carrier Cigna, the amount billed is now suddenly 17,400 bucks. And when the claim is eventually processed, the plan covered only $470 out of the 2,787 
dollar covered amount. So the members still got screwed, right? Like even though it went from 17,000 to a couple grand, it was definitely more than the cash price. The member says to the carrier, this is your fault because not only did you have a really, really bad negotiated rate, you owned a part of the lab and you didn't disclose that. If I'm the employer in that situation, I'm very interested to see if the employer is going to come forward and make an allegation against Cigna. I mean, the, the facts in that case are a little different from the Anthem and the mass labor's case because here Cigna failed to disclose to both the member and I'm assuming the employer that it had a financial interest in the provider that it quote unquote negotiated with. I mean, that's a clearly a conflict of interest. But as you probably know, Stacy, many of these ASO agreements and ASA agreements that employers have signed, and not necessarily because they did a poor job, but because it's put in front of them and it's take it or leave it. Many of these agreements say, by signing this, you acknowledge that we may have ownership interests in the providers that we negotiate with on your behalf. And you can immediately see there's a conflict of interest there. But again, if it's buyer beware... If the employer who has the fiduciary responsibility, it sounds like all these cases are kind of sounding like they're headed in in that direction, then it's on the employer to kind of recognize the legal jeopardy that they are currently staring directly into. It reads like a novel. Like when I tell some of these stories to my friends and family and I explain some of these situations, they're like, no, that's not possible. Like, that's fraud. That couldn't possibly be how this health system works. Somebody would surely do something about this. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm doing. (laughs) We're trying to shed light on these things and bring them to people's attention because this is how it works. It's just so pervasive. This is one member. And similar stories have happened to me. And I'm, you know, I talk about this stuff for a living. We all have these stories. Exactly. So if anyone wants the down low on that, I talk about it in the Encore episode with Dawn Cornelis. So let's get into your second category of these cases that are going on, which you called carrier versus hospital. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is typified by the United versus Team Health litigation and also the Team Health versus United litigation. The long and the short of it is Team Health, which is an ER staffing company that I think staffs close to a third of the ERs in the United States, owned by private equity. They have been alleged to engage in systemic upcoding. You know, when you go into the ER, it's a one, two, three, four, or five. And based on that severity, one being the lowest, five being the highest, that's what determines how much you might get paid for that particular claim. One is probably an earache and five is a gunshot wound. Well, when Team Health takes over ERs or when their claims have been systemically looked at, they have a lot more four and fives than what the medical records have substantiated. Team Health versus United, which Team Health has been successful in, in at least one jurisdiction, The allegations are that United systemically underpays Team Health. So if Team Health submits a $1,000 bill, United might knock that down to $200. And I'm just, you know, throwing out numbers for the sake of illustration. As a first bite at the apple, regardless of what the member's plan provides for out-of-network benefits. And, you know, I should also add that Team Health's business model has been to remain an out-of-network provider. Yeah, systemic upcoding, billing things as critical care, billing non-physician time as physician time in order to get the dollar reimbursement rate up. 
So those cases are continuing to play out. There are other, I've probably received no less than 10 calls from class action attorneys around the country asking, hey, Chris, I hear you work with labor unions or I hear you work with employers. Do you know anybody that would want to join a plaintiff class in pursuing team health? So the self-funded folks are starting to get into this space. You know, when United pursues team health, it's on behalf of its members and it's probably fully insured business. But self-funded employers, the ones that are actually paying the claims, have truly been the one, ones harmed when these upcoding cases have occurred. So this category here, United versus Team Health and then Team Health versus United, to me, it feels like watching an episode of Succession. <laughs> like there's everybody's up to their own rent seeking agendas here. It's like there's no hero sort of in this who is the monopoly on morality. <laughs> They're both doing things. And now we've got this battle of the titans who are slapping at each other when meanwhile, the fallout is the patient's caught in the middle and or the employer's caught in the middle. Absolutely. And and that's spot on, Stacey. Both unsavory conduct and the folks that are paying the price for this are the people paying the bill. And that's not United and that's not Team Health and that's not their private equity backed groups. It's the employers. It's the members. It's the taxpayers. We are paying for it. Yeah. And I think it's probably, even if they do wind up with some kind of compromise, any compromise that the two of them come up with is not necessarily equivalent to something that ultimately, again, is going to benefit the members, taxpayers, patients who are caught in the middle here. The retort there is like, and why would it? United Healthcare is a for-profit entity. Team Health is PE-backed. Who's looking for a return? they have no obligation to look out for anybody but themselves. And that's where the real lesson in this is where in the system is somebody looking out for the person that's paying the true cost of this bad behavior. And it's not illegal because as you just said, if a for-profit entity is seeking profit. I think you said it in one of your episodes, Stacey's like profit makers going to profit. Like that's how it is. They're going to keep seeking profit. That's what their business model is. Right. It's like that scorpion parable, right? So let's talk about number three on your list here, which is taxing authority versus nonprofit hospitals. And you brought up two cases in Pennsylvania. What's going on there? Yeah. In February of 23, the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Court issued four related but different opinions, and we're calling them the tower cases because it involves tower health. It upheld the local taxing authority's attempt to challenge the property tax exempt status of four nonprofit hospitals. These cases, they're relevant only in Pennsylvania because the way that the court did the analysis, it's a very state specific analysis. But I think that we can pull out a lot of lessons because the background of what happened with these hospitals, they got purchased back in 2017 when they were financially distressed. Essentially, the purchasing entity, they came in and they just started bleeding these hospitals dry of funds. Their management fees went from on average 2.5 million to now 25, 27 million going to this quote unquote management company that was the company that had purchased these hospitals. So the, the purchasers just pulling out every penny that they can from these hospitals. Your executive salary went from something in, you know, in the high hundreds to multiple millions of dollars. And one of the things that the court found so instructive in the profit-seeking motive here in supporting their findings was the tie between the executive compensation and financial performance. 
they found that these hospitals were not operating entirely free from profit motive, and therefore they were going to lose their tax exempt status. Another reason I think this is going to be a much bigger deal. I mean, these are, you know, four fairly small hospitals in a somewhat rural part of Pennsylvania, but turn west and we have the great medical landscape of Pittsburgh and UPMC. The mayor of Pittsburgh has said he is going to challenge the nonprofit status of UPMC and several academic institutions. So I think that's going to be a really interesting case to watch. I don't know that there is enough political fortitude on the mayor's part or the city's part to see it to its conclusion. In New Jersey, there was a case where the tax exempt status of Morristown Medical was challenged, successfully challenged, but then it was subsequently legislatively determined that hospitals could make payments in lieu of taxes in order to take away taxing authorities' private right of action. So essentially, like, I'm going to buy you off. You don't get to challenge my tax-exempt status if I give you this much money. And it could be per bed. It could be based on some other metric. That might happen in Pittsburgh. But regardless, I think it's a positive step in the right direction that we were able to successfully challenge and expose and shed some light on some of the business practices of these entities that come in, purchase, and just completely demolish the financials of these hospitals for profit. So just summing up what you said there, we've got two instances in Pennsylvania, which bear some resemblance, and then one in New Jersey. But the bottom line here is when an entity is nonprofit, That means they're tax exempt in a number of different ways. One of them is the corporate tax, et cetera. But the other one is the real estate tax. The way that a lot of towns, cities get funded, they make a lot of their money through these real estate taxes. And I have to say, hosting a podcast as I do, I get a lot of pitches. I probably get thousands of pitches a week from entities who want to come on the podcast. And obviously some of them do not do their due diligence. I get a significant number from real estate folks, which at first took me by surprise, but then you read the pitch and basically this is the pitch. We have a way where you can buy a building and then lease it out for some other purpose and then it's tax exempt and you can make a lot of money in rent. (laughs) I mean, so like this is so out there that people want to come on a podcast and talk about it. And that has consequences because when you have somebody not paying their fair share of taxes and doing stuff like that, then everybody else winds up paying more. And I think that was one of the things that the mayor of Pittsburgh was saying, that UPMC was just opening up. There's a number of different properties that UPMC had under their banner that they weren't paying real estate taxes on. And they were doing things, I am assuming, I have no knowledge of this, but sounds sort of like they hired one of these real estate consultants. And then the Tower Health one, you have this private equity firm, they bought a bunch of distressed hospitals, and then they started charging these hospitals management fees to provide, I'm going to say some kind of shared services or accounting or whatever they were saying that they were charging for management. And this was way in excess of what anyone could say the value of those services were. The one thing that I would say, though, is it's pretty known across the industry that most CEOs or many at a minimum have some sort of financial metrics in their compensation package. You hear over and over again how the boards of directors of hospitals are rewarding 
CEOs and CFOs, the C-suite of a hospital to improve their financial standing. So it's kind of interesting in the Tower case that this was used as part of the case when it's clearly going on in nonprofits elsewhere. Well, I think that there is possibly a distinction. You said the financial, shoring up your financials. I work with nonprofits. I understand your financial situation has to be such that you can keep the lights on and continue to perform your charitable purposes and have some margins so that when times get tough, right? I think the court made a distinction between tying the executive compensation to strong financial performance and financial stability, if you will, and then tying the executive compensation to profit, (laughs) right? Those are two different things. And what the court found was that the manner in which the executive compensation metrics were set didn't allow the executive to operate free from a profit motive. I see. So it's a matter of degrees. I think it's much more in the gray. And where I find regulatory failure to have occurred is where there is no clear delineation, where there are no bright line rules. It really allows for some of these actors to engage in really distasteful conduct that is not per se illegal. This is why I'm an advocate in the space of community benefit. You have to have some really clear understanding. What is community benefit? And that's what you're supposed to deliver in exchange for your tax break, right? What is community benefit? Is it giving 90% of it to your own educational institution that you're affiliated with, like University of Colorado does? Probably not. Is it putting your name on a baseball park? Probably not. Again, this is where I hope that as we bring more of these things to light, policymakers can begin to give the market a lot more clarity in what is right, what is wrong, so we can stop pointing fingers at really unethical, unsavory, what seems to be close to immoral conduct, certainly conduct that is out of step with the mission statements on these entities' websites and materials and you know, begin to allow some expectation setting to occur. Yeah, for sure. And for more on the charitable benefit or lack thereof stuff going on, the episode with Dr. Vikas Sani and Judith Garber, we really dig into that. And I think Dr. Suhas Gandhi was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And one of the ways that he put it, I think is very apropos here. He said, there's been a financialization of the healthcare industry. And what we need to do is to figure out how to align what's going on a little bit better to our values as a citizenry and as a nation, which I think is pretty much exactly what you're saying as well. Although you're coming at it from more of a legal standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got to be a full court press. It's got to be the legal system. It's got to be the regulatory system. It's got to be the market. And coming back to the role that employers and purchasers can play, they have to begin demanding more of this system and and make change. If someone is interested in your work, Chris, where would you direct them? I am very active on LinkedIn. I also have a website. My consulting firm is Versan Consulting. Feel free to reach out to me at cdeacon at versanconsulting.com. Love to hear from you. And I would highly recommend following Chris on LinkedIn and also reading her blog posts. Chris Deacon, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Have a great one, Stacey. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. 
Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or were friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps. Thanks so much for listening.